0: Hello, my name is Father Mike Moore. Welcome to this Lenten retreat based on the book The Four Teresas by Gina Lair and the great commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In this episode, we'll take a look at St. Teresa of Avila and what it means to love God with all your soul. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And this is a prayer by St. Teresa of Avila. Let nothing disturb thee. Let nothing dismay thee. All things pass. God never changes. Patience attains all that it strives for. He who has God finds he lacks nothing. God alone suffices. In this conference, we're going to talk about what does it mean to love God with all your soul? Gina Lair, in her book, felt that the charisms of St. Teresa of Avila, her amazing intellect, and her ecstasies in the level of spirituality that she rose to in her life, it was gifted by God's grace, that her charism relates maybe in the best way to the soul. Now, when we go through these saints and we talk about love with all your heart, love with all your soul, love with all your mind, it's not like these are compartmentalized. All of our actions can contain all of them, hopefully, if, we're, if we live our life in an integrated way. Even though we're, we are separating them to talk about them, they're really all together and they overlap in big ways. So let's talk about St. Teresa of Avila. She's really what you would call a vocation in the making. I relate a lot to her story because that's kind of how my vocation story was as well. She's also called St. Teresa of Jesus. She was born on March 28, 1515, and died on October the 4th, 1582. So she was a prominent Spanish mystic, Roman Catholic saint, a Carmelite nun, a writer of the Counter-Reformation, a theologian, Considered to be, along with St. John of the Cross, the founder of the Discalced Carmelites. So she was an amazing woman. Now, let's go back to when she's small. She, when she, she ran away from home at age seven with her brother Rodrigo. Why were they running away from home? Very different than why our kids would run away from home now. She had convinced Rodrigo that they were going to run away and be martyrs among the Moors. So she's running away at seven, and um, already that idealism in her mind. Her uncle, though, stopped them as he was returning to the city. He spotted them outside the city walls and said, Get back home. She was very good looking, charming, clever, witty. Her early vices, according to her, were gossiping and vanity. And she said about these early times, I still was most anxious not to be a nun. She did not want to become a nun. That's how I was when I was in eighth grade. I remember in Chicago, they came from Mundelein, from the seminary, to show us a movie. I liked getting out of spelling that day. And they showed the movie, told us, maybe you're called to be a priest. And I immediately said, oh, no. (laughs) So then I felt guilty that I didn't discern this. So then I had the following discernment. It actually lasted about this length. OK, what are the reasons why I can't do it? I'm going to pitch for the Chicago White Sox when I grow up. <laughs> Number two, uh, there's no way I'm getting up in front of people and talking. Forget about it. So that was the reasons I couldn't do it. The reasons I, then I thought, well, what are the reasons I can do it? I can't think of any. So I said, that's done. I really felt like, I felt good about myself. I said, no, that's not for me. So she had the same kind of a thing going on. She did not want to become a nun. She suffered greatly uh, with illness as a child. And in the convent, at one point, get this. At one point, they thought she was dead. The priest came and announced that she was dead. They gave her the last rites. They dug the grave. They wrapped her in a shroud. And her father intervened and said, you know what, let's wait a little bit more. She was still alive. They would have buried her alive. It took her three years to recover in the infirmary. So again, you know, a lot of for the saints' lives, they didn't lead lives without struggle. So when she went into the convent, she finally did. She said she, um, she decided to make herself enter this convent. She was not going in with, uh, like, like Teresa Ther- like of Lisieux. Therese of Lisieux, she actually went to the Pope and asked, can I go in early? She wanted to go in when she was 15, didn't want to wait till 16. And they, when she met the Pope, they told her, don't say anything. He's going to give you a blessing and just go by. Therese wouldn't follow those instructions. She said, I want to go in the convent. Can I go in early? And the, the Pope really said, well, you know, God, if it's meant God's will, he kind of like, he wasn't going to answer that one. <laughs> And she did end up going in a few, a few, several months earlier than her 16th birthday. But not, Ther- not Teresa of Avila, she didn't want to go in. She wells herself in there. And for much of her early life in the convent, and this lasted really almost 20 years, she did not excel in the convent. She did not grow much in the convent. She was passive. And then this happened. Now, remember, they have no TV, no magazines. Maybe they have books, but some of them might be illustrated, but there's a visiting statue that comes to her area, and it shows Christ with all of his wounds. It must have been pretty graphic. And she begins to understand the truth about sin and what we did And when did we see sin in our own lives? She thought about her own sinfulness. Here's what she says. The very sight of him shook me, for it clearly showed what he suffered for us. So strongly did I feel what a poor return I had made for those wounds that my heart seemed to break. And I threw myself on the ground before him in a great flood of tears imploring him to give me strength once and for all, not to offend him again. It was a conversion there. Now, mine is nowhere near as profound as hers, but I had an experience like that when I was in sixth grade. You know, our family pretty much went to Mass on Sundays. We weren't very involved in the parish. My parents were very good about that. We never missed Mass. Even on vacation, we would find where there's a church and we would go. I was all about baseball. I just wanted, I couldn't wait to mask it over. I was not listening to sermons. When I was in sixth grade, there were some boys in this class who were making fun of one of the girls that was there. Now, I can look back now, and I can know what's going on. She obviously came from a very dysfunctional family. Her dress was full of wrinkles all the time. Her hair was never combed. It was never clean. And the kids made fun of her. They would kind of go up to her and touch her and say, I'm just going to make up a name, Jody Germs, Jody Germs, and everybody would laugh. Now, I would never do that, but I remember laughing. And one day it hit me how horrible that was, how terrible to treat another human being like that. Can you imagine how she must have felt being so ostracized That day, I just felt so horrible. I felt like I committed a mortal sin. And it was the way that God told me that what we do in our lives counts. And it was the beginning of my conversion. Isn't it interesting? That's how God used it. He used the sin. The same thing for Teresa of Avila. When she saw how much Jesus suffered, it changed her. She's a, I said, a prolific writer. One of her masterpieces, maybe the masterpiece, The Interior Castle, she writes, If a person does not think of whom he is addressing, what he is asking for, and of whom he is asking it, I do not consider that he is praying at all, even though he may be constantly moving his lips. In other words, if you're not aware that you're talking to God, and that it's God that's listening, and God that's responding, don't call that prayer prayer. It's like going to the gym. I'm doing some exercises. It's not a relationship. Later on in life, she would give her novices to tell them to have a picture of Jesus and they would, should hold it. So when they were praying, they could look at the picture and realize I'm talking to somebody when I'm praying. I'm talking to Jesus. The interior castle describes the union of the soul with Jesus and the journey there, and practical advice on how to prepare for this gift. So I want to read this part, too, that um, describes this. I began to think of the soul as if it were a castle made of a single diamond or a very clear crystal in which there were many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. Now, if we think carefully over this, sisters, the soul of the righteous man is nothing but a paradise in which, as God tells us, he takes his delight. In the center, and midst of them all, is the chiefest mansion where the most secret things pass between God and the soul. If this castle is the soul, there can clearly be no question of our entering it, for we ourselves are the castle. What an image. What a way to describe the reality. We're not going out there somewhere to meet God. She comes to the reality, to the truth, that God's right in here, in the center of our soul. We are made in the image and likeness of God. When we encounter God in our spiritual journey, it's in here that that encounter occurs in the deepest part of our soul. She believed that two of the greatest virtues are detachment and humility. How am I going to make my way through that castle down to the center of myself? It's not going to be with pride. It's got to be with humility, openness, docility, detachment from material things that would be distracting me. Here's what Gina Lair says about St. Teresa in terms of her humility. She was quick to admit fault, slow to accuse anyone else. She constantly gave thanks for the benefits she received, never expecting or demanding them. She paid tribute to those who were wiser and holier than her, always seeking advice and guidance instead of presuming on her own knowledge or insights. Now get this, all of this from a woman who experienced raptures, ecstasies and visions, who became a doctor of the church, and who was destined to be one of the most popular mystical writers of all history. So she is so talented, so much experience, so much knowledge, both in like a spiritual instinct and, and knowledge gained, and she was so humble to keep asking for advice, never thinking I'm there, or never believing that, why am I asking them? They can't possibly know more than I... It was not in her nature at all by the time she came to this point in her life. She wrote, To be humble is to walk in truth. Now, you've heard probably before there's such a thing as false humility. You know, where we go around and say, No, I'm no good. Or, you know, somebody gives you a compliment. No, no, that's not me. That's false humility. If God has given us a gift and we're using that gift, now I can't claim it's mine. God gave it to me. But to say it's not there is just not, that's not truth. So what does it mean to be humble? Now, I I'm, imagine many of you know Don Shula. Those of you who have never uh, not heard of him, he was the coach of the Miami Dolphins back in the 60s and how far did that go, 70s, 80s, 80s? So he had the uh, only perfect team in NFL history. Miami Dolphins, 1973. Perfect season all the way to the Super Bowl great coach. In the early part of the league when it was still the American Football League and he was with his family up in Maine and they were there in the summertime on vacation little town it was raining like crazy and say what are we going to do with these kids so they see this little theater in the in the you know town square area they said let's go to the movies. So they walk in. There's about six people in the theater. And as soon as they walked in, they all stood up and started applauding. And Don Shula turned to his wife and he said, wow, this is amazing. We're like 1,200 miles from Miami. So the movie was over. One of the guys came over and he shook the guy's hand. He said, how did you recognize me? The man said, mister, I don't know who you are. All I know is before you came in, the manager came in and said, unless we get four more people, there's no movie. (laughs) I guess, uh, I guess they couldn't pay the projectionist, you know. But he told tell that story all the time, because he said, man, I had a kind of a big head that day. I sometimes tell that story at wedding homilies. I said, you got to be able to laugh at yourself if you're going to have a really successful marriage. You, gotta, you can't take yourself too seriously or think, I know it all. So what does it mean to be humble? Listen to St. Teresa's uh, definition of humility. I, I've never heard this one before like this. It relates to the prayer that we started out with at the beginning of the talk. St. Teresa believed that humility, if you have it, you would never have disquiet, trouble, or disturbances in your soul. But rather, peace, joy, and tranquility would always accompany this virtue. So if you want to take a test on how humble I am, I, do I handle things in peace? And with tranquility. Because otherwise, you know what's happening when we get anxious and upset and impatient. It's all about control. We think we're living under that illusion that we're in control. We're not in control. And when I'm humble, I'm realizing the truth that I'm not in control. And I have a certain peace about things that occur in life. Let's talk a little bit about a soul sickness. William Bennett, who's a very prolific writer, was the Secretary of Education under Reagan's administration. He asserts that the problem of our day is acedia. That's a word you spell like this, A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. It's the sin of sloth, defined as an aversion to and a negation of spiritual things. According to Bennett, That's our soul sickness in our society today. People have an aversion to spiritual things. I think there's also a great hunger there. So there's both. So let's just look at for very briefly. The categories I'm gonna mention here are from a, a desert father named Evagrius. And you see, people may be hungry for spiritual life, but when it comes to the hard work of walking the spiritual journey, that's when these things set in. A lot of times the seminarians will tell me when they go into the seminary, Father, my spiritual life was so much better before I entered the seminary. Why is it suffering when I'm here now? they are thinking something must be wrong with the seminary. Or maybe I'm not really called to this. These old desert fathers, they used to talk about that. They said, Once you, when you first meet the Lord, it's like, a, it's like when you meet your, your wife. Yeah? You, you, it's a romantic period. It's wonderful all the time. And then the fathers will say, but then the Holy Spirit takes away some of that natural spiritual high and is really asking the question, do you love me? Even if you don't have all those things that make you feel good, is it really love? There's a testing period. As we grow into the spiritual life, and that's when ascidia can come in, is in that hard work of growing. Evagrius says there's like stages of it. The beginning stage is it seems like time hardly moves. Let me tell you what he's referring to there. So there, here they are. These monks are living out in the desert. They got a little adobe dwelling, and they only eat once a day. Three o'clock is, is meal time. So it's getting to be noon. They still got three hours to go, and they'll go outside because they don't have watches, and they'll keep looking at where the sun is because they know where the sun should be at three o'clock. And then they'll go out there again. It seems like it's not moving because they're hungry. (laughs) So that's the first stage of the ascidia: is it just seems like it's it's getting boring. I'm I'm not liking this as much as when I first came out here. And then there's a hatred. They might feel less friendly towards their co-workers or family members or neighbors. We might spend time brooding on the ways they have angered, offended, or merely failed to encourage us. Yeah, there's one monk who says, um, after 15 years, I have not made any progress on this vice. Now, what do you think was the, the biggest vice they had to work on out there? You know, I thought it might be sexuality, because they're awful lonely. Their biggest demon was anger. So when I first heard that, I said, who are they angry at? They're living on their own out there. <laughs> but, they used to, but they would do this, though. There was a period of time when they lived semi-hermetical. They would go in once on the weekend and have mass together and have a meal. So the guys in the area, they'd all come together. So this is what would happen. This is according to our, the professor who taught me this. He said, uh, you go to the dinner, there'd be a conversation going on, and you'd be talking to a few people. And the one guy in the group would say, he'd roll his eyes and turn, you know, turn his head. And then you go home, and you think about that all week. What the heck was he doing that for? <laughs> who does he think he is? I mean, their anger sometimes rose to homicidal levels. So this is where the second stage of Assyria starts to happen. You start hating what I'm doing. Then it moves to withdrawal. I pull out. How do I get out of here? People can have these thoughts in their minds about their job, about their family, about uh, spiritual life, about going to Mass on Sunday. It's all kinds of areas that this soul sickness can affect us. The next one, the fourth one, is resignation. Okay, what's the use? It's not going to get any better. Maybe I'm going to hang in there, but I'm not liking it at all. And then finally is the absolute bleakness. When the people give up, even giving in an effort. John Navone, a Jesuit, says, Ascidia mobilizes us because it robs us of the hope we need to believe something good is possible. It deadens our belief in God's love and goodness. Trapped in Ascidia... We lack the courage for the great things that God has prepared for all who love him. So what's the remedy for this illness? This is classic Catholic spirituality. The remedy for this vice is diligence to my daily activity. I put myself more into what I'm doing. So Father John Latondras told me this story. He said he heard about a man who went to see his priest and He said, you know, Father, I I got a wonderful wife. I got a good job, great kids. But it just seems like something is missing. And the priest listened to him. And then he said, you know what you need? You need to put more love in your life. That was basically the response from this priest. So the man was driving home, and he said, you know, maybe he's right. So he walks in the house, goes over, gives his wife a big kiss, Goes in the living room, and instead of reading the paper, he plays with the kids. During dinner, he compliments his wife on the wonderful dinner. He says, honey, why don't you go in the living room and rest? Me and the kids, will wash the dishes. So after everything's cleaned up, he goes into the living room, and there's his wife crying. Tears going down her face, and he says, what? What's the matter? She said, it's been a terrible day. The kids were late getting up, so I was late going to work. I had to take off because Johnny got sick. I had to take him to the doctor. And now here you are, drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, if you put a little love in your life, uh, people may think there's something wrong. Gary Smalley uh, tells a story about his wife. He's a very famous uh, public speaker and big on marriage and he was talking about one day he was just with his wife and they were talking and he was gonna go do something. I don't know, maybe he was gonna go play golf. And she made a comment that she's never number one in his life, it's always your ministry or golf or your business or your trips. And she wasn't gonna quit or anything, she was just telling him a fact. I know I'll never be number one. Well, that conversation really bothered him. And he started, he started soul-searching on that one and realized she was telling the truth. And he vowed that day, I'm always going to put her number one from now on. It completely revitalized their marriage. Now, he still had all the duties, but he always had his wife as a part of the discernment about what he was gonna do. And she wasn't after the fact. She was now right there, always in it, as the first thing he considered. It changed their marriage. This is George Aschenbrenner. This is about the soul. There is in each of us a deepest central point where evil cannot reach and where only the beauty of God's creative love exists in all its uniqueness. A buried treasure, a pearl beyond price, a hidden self revealed in Jesus waits to be discovered, to be embraced, and to grow strong. To love God with all your soul. Here's a point for consideration. This is from Gina Lair's book. Spiritual purification was an ongoing process for St. Teresa. Up to a certain point in her life, she was passive about her spiritual journey, so she didn't progress. But after her conversion, she actively worked to rid herself of obstacles to the love of God. This work paid off with an eternal reward. So consider this. Two questions. What bad habits, vices, and sins are obstacles to my love for God? And the second, how can I put more love in my life? In the next episode of this Lenten Retreat, We'll take a look at St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross and what it means to love God with all your mind. If you think this retreat would benefit someone you know, please share it. God bless you. If you'd like to subscribe to the Seeds of Hope Reflections, just search Seeds of Hope with Father Mike, where you get your podcasts.